If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles with a different version, <laughs> it's on page three in your pew Bible in the New Testament. It is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Hear these sacred words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took, to, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command these, his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in the attitude of prayer? Lord, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, books and people uh, come into our lives at different times. I can remember the first time I came across Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. I was a, a freshman in college, and it was the right time for that book to intersect with my life. And it changed the way that I thought about things. Uh, there are other books, however, that enter at different times. Maybe not the most appropriate time. I was a, a sophomore in high school when I first came across C.S. Lewis's book on miracles. And I really remember opening it up going, I don't recognize these words. And then like I put it back on the shelf <laughs> and I like never encountered that book again for like another five or six years until I was uh, in college. And then I read it again and uh, I was then ready for that book. And so we are in a series called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership, where we are encountering a book. And I, I wonder what Henry Nouwen's book In the Name of Jesus will be for you. If it's a book that is timely, uh, you pick it up and you go, I never thought about this before, and it's going to change the way that you view things. Or maybe it could be a book uh, that's a, a not yet book. Uh, either way, I think it's a good book for us to introduce you to as pastors and for uh, us to be introduced to here at Chapelwood. So uh, why read Nowen, and uh, why do it now? Right, now and now? Okay, you'll get it. Uh, so I was thinking of a couple different things. And first, the, the book and the author's influence is so widely felt. Uh, Pastor Peter and I would not be doing our jobs if you did not know who Henry Nouwen was. 
Uh, when Matt introduced him last week, he, he talked a little bit about how Henry Nouwen is, uh, was a, a clergy member, and he, he is a professor. He went to some schools, I forget the names, like Harvard and Notre Dame and Yale, uh, you know, small little, little you know, private colleges. Uh, so he, he's got a huge pedigree, but you'd be surprised at how accessible he is, because he really is a master of spirituality, and he's not really interested in academia a whole lot. And so his book is entirely accessible. It's for all readers, right? It's about 90 pages. Uh, so it's like, yeah, the I don't like to read book. This is the book you want to grab. It's awesome. You can read a chapter in like 10 minutes. It's very fast. So three other things on maybe why we should be wrestling with now and uh, now today here at Chapelwood. The first is uh, oftentimes when we think of leadership, we think it has to look a particular way. How many of you have ever had a boss? Raise your hand, right? Okay, everybody. So we have seen firsthand when leadership is awesome, when it inspires, when you get stuff done, when it works, and then you wanna pick their brain afterwards and be like, how did you respond under that pressure? How'd you, what made you take that tact and that turn? Sadly. <laughs> We've also seen when leadership has been not as awesome. <laughs> Maybe when it's uh, left us uh, wanting, when it's hurt folks, when you don't even want to ask the person, <laughs> why'd you respond that way? Because the way they responded was completely inappropriate or terrible or horrible or any variation therein. So when we hear the word leadership, we often think, oh, I know what that means. Do we? And now he's going to point to Christ as an example and the things that we can pull out of the temptation that he encounters in the wilderness as reflections on leadership. So I think it's uh, helpful. Second, it has quietly formed uh, so many people's lives. It has quietly formed so many, so many people's lives. Oftentimes, uh, people will have a hard time putting um, uh, a particular reason or point on why uh, now and influence them. There you go, bud. <laughs> Um, and they have a hard time saying exactly why. Uh, and it's because now when it's such a great writer, uh, really, and it is accessible. He gives you words for things that you're like, I never thought of it that way. He couches it in particular ways. And so it is quietly for many lives, and we're going to hop into that. Uh, lastly, are the principles in this book are what we need right now. Not only in the society and the culture that we find ourselves, but they're what we need here at Chapelwood. We've been uh, raising a generation of faith for a number of years, uh, and we continue to do that successfully, and we will continue to do so in the future. But as we look to the horizon and we ask the question, what's next? We are going to need the principles that Nowen puts forth in this book to navigate those waters together. And so we're going to sit at the foot of the master and hear the words and uh, learn from that a little bit. So to recap, uh, yes, we uh, heard from Matthew chapter 4 last week. And I see a vision in the clouds that we will hear from Matthew chapter 4 next week as well. We're going to be sitting with the temptation of Christ for three weeks. Uh, and nod your head that there are three temptations that Christ uh, faces in the wilderness. So to look at those at 30,000 feet, the first is that Christ uh, encounters Satan in the wilderness and Satan tempts him to turn stones to bread. Right? Nod your head. You know this. Great. If you don't, you can nod your head because you do now. Right? Okay, so the second point is uh, that Jesus is taken to the tallest point of the temple. And Satan says, throw yourself down uh, from this high point and the angels will save you. And Jesus says, you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. We heard that 
again t- today. And then uh, the third one that we're going to wrestle with next week is that there is this time and place where Satan takes Jesus to a tall mountain and he says, Simba, all that the light touches will be yours. Uh, if you only bow down and worship me. And then uh, Jesus says, no, not doing it. So th- those are the three temptations that Satan um, tempts Jesus with in the wilderness. So as we look at Matthew chapter 4, there's some observations we can make about our temptation today. So, I'm going to take us there very quickly. First, what is the root of this temptation? Not the first one, not the third one, the second one. Because if you look at it at face value, this is utterly ridiculous, right? You, aren't, you're not, you don't see the ridiculousness. I will show you the ridiculousness of this temptation. Satan, imagine Satan grabs you, right? And he pulls you up to the, like, the tallest part of Chapelwood. And he says, jump off. And you, all you have to do is say, uh, no. Temptation passed. Next temptation, please. There's no temptation here. It's like, jump off the temple. Do it. And Jesus says, no, that's utterly ridiculous. Because it is utterly ridiculous at face value when we first begin to look at what's happening here. But as we pull back the layers a little bit, what is the temptation that Christ is going through in this moment? And now one gives us some words. He pulls it back and he says, the temptation is for Jesus to be spectacular. For Jesus to do something magnificent that no one was expecting. Throw yourself down. You're the son of God. You're a huge deal. We'll watch all the angels come down and save you, and it's going to be amazing. And we'll chant your name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You can do it, Jesus. We know you can. You're a one-man show. You've got this. And Jesus says, you shouldn't have put the Lord your God to the test. Isn't that interesting? The temptation isn't really like life or death. This is more about being spectacular. So hear these words from Nowen's book as he talks about it. When you look at today's church, it's easy to see the prevalence of individualism among ministers and priests, and I would add parishioners. Not too many of us have a vast repertoire of skills to be proud of, but most of us still feel that if we have anything at all to show, it is something we have to do solo. You could say that many of us feel like failed tightrope walkers who discovered that we did not have the power to draw thousands of people that we could not make many conversions, that we did not have the talents to create beautiful liturgies, that we were not as popular with the youth, the young adults, or the elderly as we had hoped, and that we were not as able to respond to the needs of our people as we had expected. But most of us still feel that ideally, we should have been able to do it all, and do it all successfully. Stardom, and individual heroism, which are such obvious aspects of our competitive society, are not at all alien to the church. There, too, the dominant image is that of the self-made man or woman who can do it all and do it all alone. And I wonder if you see it now. Do you see the temptation that Satan is kind of spurring up in Christ? Do it, Jesus. You can do it. You're the son of God. You're going to be amazing. Jesus says, you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. I see it. I see it in the narrative now. I see it 
in not only uh, my own life. I see it in the lives of my friends. I see it in the text more clearly. And now he's going to give us two pieces of advice, uh, some remedy, if you will, to the temptation narrative that he pulls out of uh, our text. Now it says that the task or remedy is twofold. If we are to move from a place of desiring and wanting popularity to a place of ministry, we need to recognize where all that ministry starts. And it starts with God. It doesn't start with ourself and our ability to perform and do it all. So he says this. Somehow we have come to believe that good leadership requires a safe distance from those we are called to lead. Medicine, psychiatry, and social work all offer us models in which service takes place in a one-way direction. Someone serves, someone else is being served. Sounds like ministry at the church sometimes, doesn't it? (laughs) And be sure not to mix up the roles of who's serving who. That would be too confusing. But how can we lay down our life for those with whom we are not even allowed to enter into a deep personal relationship with? Laying down your life means making your own faith and doubt, hope and despair, joy and sadness, courage and fear available to others as ways of getting in touch with the Lord of life. We are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone we care for. The mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God and God alone. And that's paradoxical, is it not? That'll cook your noggin, fry your bacon, whatever you want to say. Sit with that for the next 20 years. And ponder, what is that like to lead like that? What is it like to do ministry like that? He gives us another practice to consider, sort of an antidote to this idea of self-importance or self-madeness. And that is the practice of confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness, I know, strange, weird, right? We do not have a confessional booth up here. Um, I sometimes wear a clergy collar, but I don't wear the rest of the getup. I get it. So confession and forgiveness, you're like, I, <laughs> I, tell me. I don't, I don't get it. It's weird. Uh, it is a central practice to what we do as Christians. And it's a central practice for a number of reasons. Uh, first, it's what we do when we gather here at the table. You'll hear the words of confession and pardon early as we forgive one another of sins, of falling short of the glory of God. We just say, we admit it. We are not perfect people. Amen? Amen. Our leaders are not perfect leaders, right? Amen. And so we say, we get it. We confess our mistakes before you and each other, and we say, we are all human. Will you forgive me? And that's the first practice that sort of centers us and uh, tears down this infrastructure of trying to be a self-made person and moving from popularity to ministry. It brings us back into connection with one another because when we don't offer confession and forgiveness, there exists a power differential between the leader over there and the people they are trying to lead over here. 
And so when the leader comes down and says, you know what, I've messed up, I'm sorry, it allows for a greater connection. You'll notice in the liturgy for the table that we also forgive the person who's interceding for us on behalf. And that's a powerful moment when they forgive us and we forgive them. It brings us back into connection together. Confession and forgiveness remind us that we are human and so are other people. It centers us and grounds us. And so may we remember to practice the sort of things that center us and ground us, that remind us of God's provision and promise in our time in the wilderness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.